Hello and welcome to the start of a new series of Bible studies as you join us here on Search for Truth. Thanks for being with us. This programme is your Bible study time with your Bible teacher Brian Johnston and the series we begin today is Take Your Mark's Gospel and Brian begins by joining the dots. So let's go to Brian who will explain. So you want to do some Bible study? Are you ready? All set? Then take your Mark's Gospel and let's begin. As I begin, I'm thinking of those puzzle pictures I used to create as a child. You know the type you get in a printed book? Printed on the page are nothing but black dots, but they're far from randomly positioned, although at first they convey no meaning whatsoever. Beside each small dot, however, there's a number. I still recall the childish enjoyment of taking a pen and then obediently and carefully joining the dots in a numbered sequence. Very soon, you saw the pattern of dots transform into the picture of something, perhaps an elephant. Due to other bold lines that were also there to represent trees, etc., it had not been obvious from the beginning that this was how it was going to turn out. I once heard about how such dot-to-dot exercises were handed out to keep two children quiet at a church service. One child dutifully joined the dots in number order and they formed a simple boxy cross shape within a square grid array of dots. The other child was much more imaginative, however, and basically ignored the dots and drew a freehand picture of some flowers all over them. To be fair, it did look more interesting, but it wasn't the intended meaning. Unfortunately, it's possible to read the Bible in something resembling each of these two ways, either by following the contextual clues that are God-given, or else by superimposing our own creative imagination in some fanciful way of interpreting the Bible text. Hopefully, as we turn now to Mark's Gospel, we'll succeed in confining ourselves to reading the intended meaning out from the text and not superpose our own creative notions. But first, another illustration if I may. Some of you may remember a television detective series once popular in the United States. The central character was a quirky figure who went by the name of Columbo. Usually, in this genre of viewing material, that is, of detective mysteries, the way the producer keeps viewers intrigued is to withhold vital additional information until almost the last moment. When it finally surfaces, the on-screen detective and we, the viewers at home, are able to solve the crime in a previously quite unexpected way. But with the Columbo series, it was quite different. The viewers were let in on what had actually happened right at the beginning. The viewer's interest was all about watching the on-screen detective stumble his way towards solving it. Perhaps a little like when you hide something for your young children to find. They enjoy trying to find it, and you enjoy watching them getting ever closer by trial and error. How is the Gospel by Mark like this? Well, right at the beginning we read, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those are the words of the first verse with which it opens. Mark's gospel doesn't build its way up to this momentous disclosure after first presenting all the circumstantial evidence. No, Mark comes right out with it and then proceeds to defend and justify the claim by arranging his account of Jesus' life on earth in such a way that it offers supporting evidence for this dramatic opening claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now compare that with, say, the Gospel by John. 
It's only when we reach the 20th chapter of John's Gospel and verse 31 that we read that it was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in his name. John's Gospel builds towards this emphatic confirmation of what all the recorded signs had been leading the reader towards, that Jesus is God's Son. Not only does Mark open his Gospel with such a plain statement of what it's all about, by identifying right at the outset who Jesus Christ is, but this is, in fact, the first of three similar confessions that are to be found in the Gospel. The first is right at the beginning, as we've said. The second, in the middle of it, comes from the lips of Peter. And so we can refer to it as Peter's confession, when he said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And finally, the third confession is very close to the end of the Gospel and is found in the story of the crucifixion. There, at the foot of the cross, and seeing Jesus die, the centurion cries out, Truly this man was the Son of God. Those three confessions give a sort of beginning, middle, and ending structure to Mark's Gospel, with the central confession, in some sense, acting like a hinge between focusing on the who question, that is, who Jesus is, before majoring afterwards on the why question, that is, why did Jesus die? Those are the two most important questions that can engage the human mind, which makes for Mark's gospel being essential reading for us all. But with that taster and brief introductory guide, let's rewind back to the beginning again and start with Mark at chapter 1, verse 1, with that first confession that gives the game right away at the outset. By the way, in Mark 1 and verse 1, the words that say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the word gospel there simply means good news. And with Mark's opening declaration that Jesus Christ is God's Son, what Mark is at once telling us is this, that the good news is a person. Usually good news is when something happens. But the best news for the human race was when this person came. God had been promising this would happen for thousands of years. And Mark recalls that Isaiah the prophet, in particular, had spoken about him. In the Old Testament, God had promised his people, who at that time were the nation of Israel, a Messiah, that is, someone anointed, as kings were, to deliver all who follow him from their dread predicament. They'd waited for many hundreds of years. Now at last, Jesus himself announces, the time has come. In other words, Jesus is being introduced as the king of God's kingdom. He'll be the one to rule over God's people. Another point to be clear on is this, that Christ is not really just another part of Jesus' name. It's his office or job title. Jesus was the Christ or the king that God had sent. Jesus is God's son. It's official. God says so. Jesus has come to tell the good news that God's kingdom is arriving. The only appropriate response is that we should believe it and turn away from our sins, which is what the word repent means, as used by Mark when he reports on what Jesus' initial preaching was about. He told, in fact, he commanded people to repent. It was time for Jesus to begin his work. His work was to bring the good news, to announce that the time for God's kingdom had finally arrived. But where does the action begin? The report cuts away to a river scene in verse 9, the same river that had been the butt of a famous put-down in the Old Testament. Jesus' public ministry starts from there, down by the Jordan. 
the Jordan being the name of the river in which John the Baptist had previously, up until this moment, been baptising people. And what's the very first thing Jesus did? He allowed himself to be baptised, or put under the water, by his relative John, who was God's messenger. The messenger, John, has now completed his preparing of the ground for the Messiah, Jesus. And so the spotlight switches to Jesus' life and ministry, and away from John's. Up until now, John has been telling the people how special Jesus is. Now, God himself takes over and speaks from heaven. John had been right about Jesus. As Jesus emerged from the water of the river Jordan, a voice coming from heaven declared, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. This is the ultimate commendation from God the Father himself. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read that God looks down from heaven to earth and says, There is none who does good. Jesus Christ is unique. The only hope for this world is found in him. There's no good news in any human self-help scheme, nor in any religious tradition. There's but one name given under heaven by which we can be saved from divine judgment to come, and that's the name of Jesus. Malcolm Muggeridge came to recognise this and say, In one lifetime, I have seen my own fellow countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. An Italian clown announced that he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as a wiser than Solomon, all in one little lifetime, all gone with the wind. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name, in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. Behind the debris of these self-styled, sullen supermen and imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one person, because of whom, by whom, in whom and through whom alone mankind may still have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. Well, as we've said, God was pleased to announce the public start of his son's earthly mission. But Satan, that's the devil, was angry. Satan wanted to stop Jesus. He tried to stop the good news spreading. Satan tempted Jesus to try, if it was possible, to have him follow an easier path, easier than the one his father had planned for him. But Jesus didn't listen to Satan, God's adversary. This seems to hint at a contrast with God's people Israel in the desert. You can read about that in the Bible books of Exodus and Numbers. They had failed their test. Israel chose not to trust God. But Jesus didn't fail his test. For 40 days, a day for every year of Israel's big test in the desert, Jesus was in the desert being tested. Jesus passes the test and comes out of the desert to preach the good news. John the Baptist cannot preach the good news any longer because he's been imprisoned. So now, Jesus tells people the same message that John did, but adds much more information. The fullest disclosure we have about God, our maker and judge, comes through Jesus Christ. And Mark's gospel, which we've only just begun to study, has so much more to tell us. Isn't it great when a queue we've been waiting in starts moving at last? The good news is that people don't have to wait any longer. The king has come. The person who can forgive their sins has come. And what that now means is that it's time for us to do something.
It's so truly amazing that God loves us each one, each one of us so deeply. It's totally beyond our understanding to reason why. It was the love and grace of God that led Christ to die on the cross in such agony, to bear God's judgment for our sin and give us his righteousness in exchange. It's absolutely amazing, but it's also absolutely true. And the new book which accompanies this series is called Take Your Marks Gospel, and it contains all the transcripts of the talks in this series. It's available on request, and if you like a copy, just write in by email or by post. I'll be giving you the contact details shortly if you have a pen and paper to hand, but I must also remind you that the talk you've heard today is available to download via the internet, either in audio or text format. To obtain the book, simply ask for Great Spiritual Movements. You can do this by email or by post, and here's the address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Claxlands, Royal Wooden Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. And did you know by looking up churchesofgod.info forward slash media, you'll find our church's main website where you can download some actual programmes and their transcripts, as well as accessing other helpful material. So I hope you enjoyed Brian's first study in this new series, and you'll want to join us next week in time for a talk entitled Jesus Can Demand Allegiance. Allegiance is faithfulness, loyalty and commitment. So until then, it's very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, our producer David, our singers and me, John. Cheerio and may God richly bless you. Amen.